0: And welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. In the aftermath of the attempted invasion of England by the Spanish Armada, Europe found itself to be a very different place. The balance of power in Europe had shifted away from Spanish domination, and all the rest of the colonial powers in Europe, well, they wanted their slice of the pie. In England, many of the young and ambitious ship's captains who had sailed under men like Drake and Hawkins in winter, they petitioned the Queen to sail for the East Indies. They finally had the strength to sail for the East Indies for decades, even perhaps centuries. The Spanish and Portuguese had kept that from being an option, but Drake had proved that they could sail those waters with relative safety. In the year 1600, Elizabeth granted many of these merchants an official royal charter, This formed the English East India Company, and it gave them a monopoly on trade with the East. Now, the East India Company will be a major player in the story to come. Their interactions with Caribbean pirates is the stuff of legend. But for now, despite their monopoly, their position was not as strong as it might seem. You see, a monopoly really only applied to other English merchants. They had plenty of competition in Asia. First of all, these were Portuguese waters, and the Portuguese were still there. Though this was the Portuguese empire under Philip, and they were significantly weaker than they had been, they were still a threat that had to be dealt with, but regardless, the English merchants still managed to turn a profit. However, their real competition came on the backs of Dutch ships. In the wake of the Armada and during a lull in the Eighty Years' War, the Dutch empire was really beginning to bloom. Decades of English and Dutch attacks on Spanish merchant shipping had left a void in international seafaring trade, and it was really, more than anyone else, the Dutch who filled that void. They had a new ship, the Flute, which was really huge compared to any of the other merchant ships in Europe. It was about twice as long as any of these other vessels, and it had a squared hull that could hold two to three times the cargo of any other ships. The Dutch quickly came to dominate trade in the Baltic Sea, in the North Sea, and in the English Channel. They pushed the English just aside, and even the Spanish, with whom they were currently at war, were forced to concede to peaceful trade. Soon, the Dutch found themselves in the Mediterranean, and they controlled trade with both Constantinople and Alexandria. These were major trading ports, places that were the centers of trade for both Africa and the Middle East. Basically, the entire Muslim world traded through these ports, so if you wanted any goods from them, you had to trade in one of these major ports. When the Spanish endeavored to push the Dutch out of the Mediterranean, the Dutch sent a fleet into the strait of Gibraltar and sunk the entire Spanish fleet. This was really how the Dutch did business. Whenever anyone tried to encroach on areas that they had a business interest in, they suddenly found themselves the victims of completely unrelated pirate attacks until they were either sunk or forced to leave. It really operated kind of like the Mafia. It was sort of a, look, do business with us, you're going to make money, for a little bit on the side, we're going to protect you, and if anybody else tries to encroach on our business, they're going to be sleeping with the fishes. And it worked marvelously. The Dutch found themselves in control of the largest trading empire that the world had. In no time, they found themselves in control of all of the ports on the African coast, and all of the gold and ivory that the continent carried, as well as all of the other goods, including human slaves. It was in 1602 that the Dutch East India Company opened up for business. As the English crown had done, these merchants who formed the Dutch East India Company were given a monopoly on trade, but this ruffled a lot of feathers back in the United Provinces, so these merchants had to look elsewhere to make their money. Rival merchant firms began plans to form their own companies. Companies that would control the West African coast and all of the slaves that that implied. Now those slaves were traded solely with the New World, North America and the Caribbean primarily. This also gave them access to all of the tobacco and sugar that the New World had to offer. This became the most profitable trading route in the entire world and everybody wanted in on it. And soon, every country in Europe was fighting for their place. This is episode number 14, The New New World. Dutch tactics at the dawn of the 17th century were very similar to English tactics at the end of the last century. They primarily traded with Spanish New World colonies. Now, they weren't allowed to trade with these Spanish New World colonies officially, but they gave better deals than the Spanish did, and so the colonists preferred to buy from the Dutch. Beyond that, they also replaced the English and the French as the greatest piratical menace in the Caribbean. They turned to the Caribbean first as these legitimate merchants, seeking sources for goods that were denied them by the trade embargo put on them by the Spanish. They were primarily interested in three goods, sugar, tobacco, and salt. Sugar and tobacco were luxury goods that all the best people had. If you went to visit somebody and they didn't have a sugar bowl when they served you tea, it was somewhat embarrassing. If they were unable to smoke a cigar or light a pipe after dinner, then it was also seen as somewhat low class. Anybody who was anybody was using sugar and tobacco at this time. They weren't just luxury goods for the elite. They were luxury goods for the merchant class and even the middle class. Basically, anybody who wasn't the lowliest of peasants wanted a little bit of sugar and tobacco to show off just how classy they were. Now, sugar was seen as a relatively harmless luxury, something that sweetened the tea and that the young ladies liked. But tobacco was catching on so quickly that people realized soon what a real menace it was. It caught on particularly fiercely in the Protestant nations. The Catholic churches all across Europe condemned the leaf as a heretical heathen ritual. But even in those Catholic countries, you would find Spaniards and Frenchmen and Germans all smoking tobacco. Even the church's condemnation could not keep the use of this plant back. But in those Protestant countries, it was running rampant. In 1604, the newly raised King James I of England published the Counterblast to Tobacco. It read in part, quote, Have you not reason then to be ashamed and to forbear this filthy novelty so basely grounded, so foolishly received, and so grossly mistaken in the right use thereof? In your abuse thereof, sinning against God, harming yourselves both in persons and goods, and raking also thereby the marks and notes of vanity upon you, a custom loathsome to the eye, hateful to the nose, harmful to the brain, dangerous to the lungs. End quote. There's a lot going on in this quote. It looks bad, it smells bad, it's bad for you. These are all obvious things. However, there's a lot of talk of God in there. The vanity line is very important. This was seen as a sinful act because it served no purpose other than as a luxury good and a status symbol. In Europe, the tide was beginning to turn. Vanity was seen as a dreadful sin, and more and more people were climbing onto this train of Puritanism. We're going to talk a lot more about that later. But for now, despite the Puritan elements and the king's diatribe against the leaf, tobacco had caught on in England and in the Netherlands and in Spain, France, everyone was using it. They even took it over to Asia, where it was going to cause a whole slew of its own problems over there. Tobacco was quickly becoming something that everyone in the world wanted a little bit of. Salt, on the other hand, was not a luxury good. It was a necessary element of life. If you lived on the North Sea... Or, if you lived on the English Channel, you were going to find yourself eating a lot of fish, primarily cod. And salt was used to preserve that cod for transport from harbor to harbor or overland. It wasn't only used for fish, but for curing all sorts of meats, especially at sea. Basically, if you wanted to eat anything that wasn't freshly killed or picked from your own garden, you were going to need some salt to preserve it and keep it edible. And unfortunately for the Dutch, they had recently lost their sole source of salt. Most of the salt in Western Europe came from salt mines in Portugal. Now, the Dutch and the Spanish Empire, including the Portuguese, were still embroiled in the 80 Years War, and the Spanish decided to use a tactic against them, denying them all sorts of trade. Most of this the Dutch could get around, but they had trouble finding a new source of salt in Europe. So they turned to the New World, where they quickly found an inexhaustible source on the coast of what is modern-day Venezuela, then called Brazil. On the Araraya Peninsula, near Lake Araraya, the Dutch found a salt plain that would supply their entire nation with salt for as long as they needed it. At least, for as long as they could get it from out of the hands of the Spanish. They sent their massive ships to collect as much salt as they could possibly carry, along with a few armed pinnaces and sloops to defend against any Spanish patrols that might come along. This was still all Spanish land and while the locals had been willing to trade, the governors were well aware that these two nations were at war and would chase off any Dutch ships they found. But no patrols came. Not one single vessel came to question or harass the Dutch. When they started thinking about it, they realized that they hadn't seen a single warship or official patrol boat on their entire trip to the New World. So rather than keeping their pinnaces and sloops on hand to protect them, they sent them out to do a little investigative work. No matter where they sailed, more and more boldly into Spanish-controlled harbors, they didn't find any warships or patrol boats. All they found were fat, heavy, and slow merchant vessels. Merchant vessels that the Dutch quickly relieved of any valuables they might have on board. This quickly became really the primary goal for these missions. Men who were admirals in the Eighty Years' War back in Europe would bring their own vessels along, ostensibly according to European politics, to protect their salt vessels, but really all they did was follow in Drake's footsteps and attack as much Spanish merchant shipping as possible. For six whole years, the Dutch sailed around 800 of these large salt ships to Brazil, and for six years, their sloops raided and plundered. The New World had always been heavily defended by Spain. It was a place that all of their riches stemmed from, but they quickly realized that this was now the most vulnerable point in the Spanish Empire, and they exploited that fact. As tales spread back in Europe of the rich waters of the Caribbean, the French Huguenot pirates who had for decades terrorized the Spanish came back in numbers. There were more French pirates in the Caribbean at this point in time than there ever had been in the past. The Dutch dwarfed the English fleets in the heyday of Drake and Hawkins. They were a menace that was unseen in the past. Their forebears, men like Drake and Vandermark and Le Testou, oh they would have been proud of seeing this new generation of young Protestant pirates taking on the Spanish, but they also would have been shocked. These new pirates faced almost no resistance from the Spanish. The Spanish almost never sent ships against them, even after reports had been sent to the governor of their terrible, terrible deeds. When an especially bold governor would send out a couple of ships to try and take on this pirate menace, well, it was laughable. The Dutch and the French would sometimes just fire some shots at them and send them packing, but more often they would just take their ships and drop off the Spaniards in small boats to get to land. The Spanish quickly realized that the more ships they sent against them, the stronger and stronger these fleets were becoming. The truth was that the Spanish Empire was completely bankrupt. Their wars against France, and then against England, and then against the Dutch, and then against Portugal, and all the while against the Ottoman Turks, had left them completely destitute. Philip had gotten them into so many engagements that all of the gold and silver of the New World, which they shipped over on massive flotillas twice a year, could still not fund all of these wars. The mood at the Spanish court in the capital has been, it would be called, somber. Many historians have compared it to the last days of the Roman Empire when the Visigoths were at the gates and the Huns came knocking, and they knew that their days were numbered, but they tried to project an image of strength. However, despite their best efforts, they could not convince anybody else that they had anything left to hold them back. So the Spanish colonists, who at this point were really Americans, most of the people that lived in the New World had been born in the New World. They huddled in their towns and their ports, and their enemies, the Dutch and the French, ruled the waters. The English, however, are noticeably absent from this time of Protestant piracy in the Caribbean. That new English king, King James, didn't share the former queen's attitude towards piracy. He punished and imprisoned any pirates that he caught, and he encouraged legitimate trade and commerce and colonization. Elizabeth had tried her hand at colonization several times, but it had never really worked out. The English had made a lot more money off of the piracy of men like Francis Drake, so the colonies really got pushed to the back burner, but under James, he redoubled his efforts. He focused primarily on North America. He had his dream of a new England across the Atlantic, and he granted a charter to the Virginia Company. They sailed across the Atlantic to North America to the region known as Virginia, named after Elizabeth the Virgin Queen, and in 1607, they settled Jamestown. The attempted settlements at Roanoke had ended in disaster, but Jamestown, named obviously after King James I, was England's first successful and lasting attempt at a colony. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A relief mission carrying supplies to the settlement at Jamestown two years later in 1609 was hit by a truly disastrous storm, and it shipwrecked at the island of Bermuda. The captain, a man named Sir George Summers, had sailed under Sir Francis Drake as a young man and under Sir Walter Raleigh, and he led these castaways on the island of Bermuda for ten whole months. They really built a proto-settlement there. They built homes and fishing huts. This is supposed to be the inspiration for Shakespeare's play The Tempest. But in addition to homes and shelter, they also built ships. And ten months after shipwrecking, they sailed on to the colony at Virginia. Every person, including the dog on board, had survived. In 1612, this man George Somers was granted his own royal license to build a permanent settlement on Bermuda. Now, if you look at a map, Bermuda is kind of perfectly situated between England and the New World. It's not an island in the Caribbean, but it is a perfect stopping place, kind of similar to the islands in the Atlantic that the Spanish and Portuguese used to travel to the New World. But soon, the English realized that the real money was not in tobacco plantations in Virginia or in new Puritan settlements in Boston, but the real money was down south in the Caribbean. We've spent a lot of time on the New World in this show, all over the Caribbean and even on the Spanish Main, but now we're going to be focusing much more heavily on the region, and I'd like to spend just a little bit of time going over some of the basic geography. If you picture the Caribbean, or pull up a map of the Caribbean, there's one at the website, you'll see that the majority of the islands in the Caribbean form a sort of a barrier between the Atlantic Ocean and the Caribbean Sea. This barrier stretches all the way from Florida to South America and forms almost kind of a hook shape. These islands are generally categorized into three different groups. The northernmost of these islands, the islands closest to North America, are collectively known as the Bahamas. There are a ton of these islands, and they're all relatively small and kind of packed together. The waters in between them are all shallow and clear and beautiful. They all have miles of sandy beach and tropical palm trees. Basically, it's paradise. You know, it's the Bahamas. The Spanish mostly ignored the Bahamas, at least in terms of colonization. They traded with the natives there and captured a lot of the natives for slaves, but really there weren't too many Spanish settlements in the Bahamas. Now to the southwest of the Bahamas, there are the largest islands in the Caribbean, namely Cuba, Jamaica, Hispaniola, and Puerto Rico. These are known collectively as the Greater Antilles. The majority, really nearly all, of Spanish colonization in the Caribbean took place on the Greater Antilles. Now, the discovery of gold and silver on the mainland and the subsequent conquest of the Aztec and Inca empires pushed the Greater Antilles a little bit into the background. But the oldest and sometimes grandest settlements in the New World were still there on these islands, and they were still kind of a jewel in Spain's crown. And then to the southeast of the Greater Antilles lay the Lesser Antilles. They form really the hook part of that hook shape, kind of wrapping around from where the Greater Antilles and the Bahamas leave off to reach all the way around to the South American continent. The Lesser Antilles are generally split into two different sets of islands, two subsets, the leeward islands and the windward islands. The Spanish colonies are peppered throughout all of the Lesser Antilles, though mostly they were on the Windward Islands. That's where most of the Europeans first made landfall when they were crossing the Atlantic. That's all part of that triangle trade. If you traveled south to Africa and then traveled west across the Atlantic, the Windward Islands are where you would very first make landfall. And it was here, in these Lesser Antilles, that the Dutch really first made their presence known. They moved fast. These colonies were small and poorly defended, so the Dutch pushed out basically all of the Spanish merchant shipping. They became the only way for the few Spanish who were still left in their colonies there to get many of the goods that they needed just simply to live. As they pushed further and further into the Caribbean, the Spanish basically pulled back just to the greater Antilles and to the mainland. These were the only ports that were of enough import for them to spend the resources it took to defend them. So the Dutch controlled basically the entirety of the lesser Antilles and the Bahamas. Now due to the years of the Spanish taking them as slaves and open warfare and in many cases, most importantly, the germs, These islands were basically uninhabited. There were almost no natives left on many of these smaller islands. So really, once the Dutch pushed the Spanish out, they had really nobody competing with them. The Dutch began to settle down and put down roots. They started colonies of their own and moved into the established Spanish colonies. At first, this was really just the actions of Dutch merchants who were looking to make a profit in the Caribbean, but soon it became a real place of warfare, uh, an American theater of the Eighty Years' War. They not only came in and put down their own colonies, but pushed further and further into Spanish-held waters. Eventually, even all of the colonies on the Greater Antilles were forced to concede to trade with the Dutch. And the Dutch had such massive fleets that really the Spanish could do very little against them, and they began building these truly impressive harbor forts on every place that they had a settlement that really made the thought of reconquest of these islands a non-issue. The Dutch were definitely here and were a presence that the Spanish really couldn't do anything about. But the Dutch weren't finished there. They pushed further into the Caribbean and then began to push into South America, that is the part at the southern end of the Lesser Antilles, being modern-day Venezuela. They started a really, overland war campaign on the mainland against all of the Spanish settlements there. So, all of the Spanish resources in the region were pushed into fighting against the Dutch, and the French and English used this as a perfect time to trickle in and begin setting up their own colonies. The very first English colony in the Caribbean was on the island of St. Kitts, or St. Christopher. This was named after Columbus. This was perhaps one of the first places he landed. It was settled in 1623 by the English, and then in 1625, the French established a colony on St. Kitts as well. The French and the English, these were French Huguenot settlements, so they settled the island peacefully and split it between them. Now, the Dutch were happy to have the French and the English. They were all good Protestants, mostly. There were some Catholics there, but it didn't encroach on the Dutch interests in the Caribbean. It really kind of enhanced them. See, the Dutch and the English were building sugar and tobacco plantations in their settlements, but building plantations is kind of an expensive endeavor and really kind of hard work. Trade was really the preferred means that the Dutch used to make a profit. They preferred to bring in tools and all sorts of manufactured goods into the colonies and then export all of their produce back to Europe for sale. This was a lot less work and really made them a lot more money. Notably, The most important and valuable cargo of all was what the Dutch excelled at, the sale of human beings. The Dutch could really be given credit, or take the blame, for starting the early 17th century plantation system. They really built this entire economy in the Caribbean. There were manufacturing centers, primarily Antwerp and Amsterdam, that built all of the machinery needed to process sugar and tobacco. Their slave ships carried untold numbers of Africans to the New World to work for French and English masters, and their merchants carried all of the goods produced back to Europe for sale. Really, the Dutch facilitated this entire New World economy built entirely on the back of African slaves. But despite all of the profit that this plantation system created, still their most emotionally satisfying venture was piracy. Now, Spanish ships all over were being attacked by Protestant ships, but in 1628, a Dutch admiral named Pieter Hein fulfilled Sir Francis Drake's dream. He sailed toward the Spanish main with a fleet of Dutch naval vessels, bolstered by another fleet of Dutch Caribbean pirates. It was in the waters near Mexico that they intercepted the Spanish treasure fleet. Initially, Admiral Hine took eight ships. He had to chase the rest of the fleet down, but in the end, he took a total of 16 ships, some in the open ocean, and finally, capturing the last few on the coast of Cuba. Now, all of these ships were virtually unguarded. They didn't have a fleet of warships to guard them because the Spanish couldn't afford it, so he took all of these ships without bloodshed, and he stole enough money from the Spanish to fund the Dutch army for a full eight months. Now, despite the blow to the Spanish financially, Admiral Hine was not a monster. He released all of his Spanish prisoners with ample provisions and a guide to take them to Havana. He did, of course, take their ships, but the race for colonies in the Caribbean was on. Now, it should be noted that these colonies were not official royal colonies. As the English and the Dutch and the French all spread throughout the Caribbean, their monarchs were all otherwise occupied. Back in England, King James had passed away, and his son, Charles, had taken the throne. It turns out, Charles wasn't the best of monarchs. That Puritan element in his country was gaining steam and causing Charles a lot of trouble. There were a series of civil wars in England, so the English crown was not really worried with anything that was happening in the New World. Now, on the continent, both the Thirty Years' War and the Eighty Years' War were still raging, so nearly every nation in Europe was embroiled in some sort of warfare. The only people who cared what was happening back in the New World were the merchants who were trying to make as much money as possible, and the pirates who wanted to steal as much of that money as they could. Now, that's not to say that the English crowns didn't have an interest in their New World colonies. Anybody who had founded a colony in the Caribbean paid their respective monarch a percentage of their profits. It could even be argued, and has been by many historians, that these early days of Caribbean colonization caused many of the wars raging all throughout Europe. The English would go on to take the islands of Barbados, Antigua, Montserrat, and Anguilla, The French would take Guadalupe, Martinique, Saint Martin, Saint Bart, Saint Lucia, Grenada, and Saint Croix. The Dutch, the Danes, the Swedes, the Norwegians, they all took their share, and for a time the Northern Europeans really ruled the Caribbean. The Spanish, in a drastic and ill conceived attempt to combat this incursion, well, they greatly aided their enemies, and they really gave rise to Caribbean piracy. They planned to deny these Dutchmen, and these English and French, the tobacco and sugar that they desired. So, they banned tobacco production in Brazil for 10 years. Then, they depopulated entire islands and moved all of the people from these islands to larger population centers. One of the most drastic of these was when the Spanish took the entire population of the northwest part of the island of Hispaniola and moved them to the other side of the island. And it was here, just off the northwest coast, that we find a small island, insignificant really, that Christopher Columbus discovered on his first voyage. In his journals he records it, out of the mists he saw this island rising, a large round mountain that reminded him of nothing so much as a massive tortoise. And he gave the island her name, Tortuga. The island of Tortuga was... A long-time haunt of pirates in the Caribbean. Dutch and French pirates used the island as a place to launch raids against shipping going to Hispaniola. Uh, It had a really great port that was large enough for about two gunships to enter so it could be easily defended. But after the Spanish withdrawal towards Santo Domingo, uh, an even larger host of English and French pirates made landfall. They intended to set up shop on Tortuga for good. They chased off the few remaining Spaniards, and in 1625, they established a colony on Tortuga. For a time, they planted crops. They hunted, they fished, and they raided the Spanish. This was a collection of true scallywags who were feasting on boar and pigeon and Spanish loot. But that was, of course, something that the Spanish couldn't put up with. Eventually, they did come to reclaim the island. The men who had settled Tortuga saw the Spanish coming, and they ran to their canoes where they rowed over to the mainland. The Spanish followed these pirates over to Hispaniola. They intended to track them down, but they had a lot of trouble. These men were wily and wild, and they were at home on the ocean or in the mountains. These pirates lured the Spanish further and further inland, until one night they snuck past the nearly 800 Spanish soldiers back to their canoes where they rowed back to Tortuga. Now when the pirates returned, they found that the Spanish had built a small fort and left a few Spaniards living there. The French and English intended to exile or kill the Spaniards, but as it turned out, they weren't really Spanish at all. These men were locals who had been born and raised on Tortuga, or some of them on the nearby coast on Hispaniola. The men spoke Spanish, but they had no love for their governors or their overlords. They were these locally born Americans and it turns out they really liked Tortuga. They showed these pirates how they'd always survived on the island. The locals, along with a growing number of Amerindian natives, showed the pirates which trees they had always cut for timber. There was sandalwood and candlewood, which gave a rich yellow dye. There were palms, which they used for wine, and there were yams that they used to make food and beer. They were shown all around to the best fishing grounds, and a place where hundreds of thousands of pigeons would flock every year. The natives showed them their traditional methods for hunting or trapping wild boar. They did so without dogs or guns. And the natives showed the European pirates their preferred method for cooking this boar, using a rack to smoke and roast the meat. The Arawak had called this rack a bucan. The French and the English, as it turned out, loved the meat from cooking in this method, and they took that Arawak word as a new title. They were no longer pirates, but buccaneers. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Supposed originally to symbolize a shift in occupation They meant to be hunters of boar Who sold the pelts to the Dutch And timber merchants selling wood They meant to produce yams and dye And build a real colony A sustainable place to live They sent for wives and families And they built farms and houses And were trying to build something new These pirates were trying to give up a life of violence And trying to build a colony that was all their own It was a place that was unique in the Caribbean, where Spaniards and Englishmen, French, Dutch, and Natives, even free Africans, they all flocked to Tortuga. They had an elected governor, but they had no royal authority or national allegiance. These were a free people. Now, they were mostly Protestant, but there were still Catholics there as well. And the Africans and the Native people practiced their own religions, and nobody was trying to kill them. These people in Tortuga chose their own leaders, and for a time it was really a, a democratic paradise. They called themselves, originally at this time, the Brethren of the Coast. But the old world would soon enough encroach upon them and drag them back into a world of warfare and religious struggle. In England, the civil wars were not going well for Charles and a young Puritan MP named Oliver Cromwell, along with many of his associates, plotted to found a new English colony along Puritan principles. Now, they had founded the colony at Boston, in Massachusetts, and it was flourishing, so Cromwell had his eyes on putting something in the Caribbean. A group of these Puritan leaders, they received a royal commission from Charles to open the Providence Company. In 1631, they planted settlements on Providence and Henrietta Islands. Now, don't worry if you're unfamiliar with these islands, they really didn't last long. Now, these settlements were so far away from the established English colonies and the Lesser Antilles that their efforts at trade completely failed next to the cheaper and more reliable Dutch merchants. So the Providence Company turned their eyes on Tortuga. There, these Puritans established a thoroughly English colony where they imported slaves and planted tobacco and persecuted anyone that wasn't thoroughly Protestant enough for them. They split the island by the old national boundaries and both the French and English factions built forts to protect their towns and their harbor. Now, after failing at trade and at tobacco planting, which was so lucrative a vocation that even the smallest subsistence farmers cultivated it, the Providence Company turned to piracy. The pirates of the Providence Company were the worst kind of pirates. They were the boring kind. Their captains banned drinking. They banned whoring. They banned any music that was not an official hymn. They even banned card playing. All I imagine on board these Providence Company pirate vessels are men who are praying silently and looking for Spanish vessels to sack. (sighs) They did, however, sack Spanish vessels pretty successfully, and they raised Spanish ire. So in 1635, a Spanish fleet attacked Providence Island and the British settlement there. They were repelled by the Providence Islanders, but then they moved on to Tortuga. On Tortuga, they occupied the island. Now, most of the men were off hunting in the mountains or raiding at sea, but any men they captured, they hung. There were no questions, there were no trials, just execution. All of the women and children were exiled. Now, attacking a settlement that has an official royal charter might seem like an act of war, or the sort of thing that would start a war, but that wasn't exactly the case. While the Eighty Years' War was raging, the English and French were both at peace with Spain. Spain. But the colonial powers had adopted an unofficial policy known as the No Peace Beyond the Line Policy. It meant that below the line of demarcation that was set by the Treaty of Tordesillas from 1494, the politics and treaties of old Europe did not hold. In reality, what this meant was that the New World was up for grabs and whoever could take land and hold it could have it. There was no such thing as an act of war in the New World, only a quest for colonization. Now, for these attacks on Tortuga and Providence Island, the men of the Providence Company all obtained letters of reprisal against the Spanish. Before they could use them, though, the island of Providence was eventually retaken by the Spanish. They took every man that they found and sent him back to Spain in chains. Now, the Puritan pirates, with these letters of reprisal, remained in the Caribbean, and they rallied under a man named Captain William Jackson. Armed with these letters of Mark, they decided to set sail and plunder. Now, in March of 1643, Captain Jackson took his seven ships and sailed into what would eventually become the port at Kingston, Jamaica, and they went ashore. They marched on a town called Villa de la Vega, which is now known as Spanish Town. There were 500 English buccaneers that attacked the city, which was at the time the principal settlement on Jamaica. There was a fierce but brief firefight, and the English took the city. Now these buccaneers, in fact really all buccaneers, followed in the footsteps of Francis Drake. Taking ships was all well and good, but tobacco and sugar were heavy, and it took a lot of time to turn them into gold. Taking cities, though, was a much better enterprise. You had the opportunity to ransack the homes of the rich, empty the taverns of all the food and drink, and then ransom the town. For the troubles of these 500 English buccaneers, they received a grand total of 7,000 pieces of eight, 10,000 pounds of cassava bread, and 200 head of cattle. In truth, it wasn't much, but a number of the Englishmen were so enamored with the island of Jamaica that they decided to abandon ranks and stay there, many of them taking on Spanish wives. And even the Englishmen who stayed loyal and went back to England loved the island so much that it filled the entire English consciousness with kind of a lust over the island of Jamaica, which we'll return to eventually. Back on Tortuga, though, the island had returned to life. Now, once again, they had no rulers. The Providence Company was gone, and they had no crown to make them bow. Dutch, French, English, native, and African all called the island home, but it wasn't the idyllic colony it had been. All of the respectable settlers and farmers on the island had been killed, and no more would come to settle down. The only women who would elect to go to Tortuga were prostitutes, and the only children on the island were their bastards. There were few legitimate businesses, and the few that there were were only taverns that were filthy places that served cheap rum and worse, ale. Now, there were merchants on the island, to be sure, but there were no craftsmen, no cobblers. If you needed a pair of boots, you would take them from a dead man. And these merchants served only to fence the goods that the pirates stole, selling them to the Dutch. There were only two industries on the island of Tortuga, and every man there took part in both. Once again, they hunted boar, and once again, they hunted gold. This is where history records the Brethren of the Coast, the Buccaneers of Tortuga, and begins to tremble. These men held no allegiance to kings, and they held even less allegiance to each other. No one in the Caribbean was safe from nighttime raids. No ship, save the Dutch merchant vessels, failed to guard against attack from the Buccaneers. If the island had once been a paradise, now, in the eyes of everyone in the Caribbean, it was hell. And Lucifer himself resided there. Well, actually, two Lucifers resided there. There was a Dutch pirate named Hendrik Jacob Zoon who sailed with the Brethren in the 1620s. He was called by authorities, quote, the worst shark in the sea, end quote, and he was named Lucifer for his propensity to use fire when taking a ship. Now Jacob Zoon was killed in 1627, but he left behind a man who may have been his son through an African mother. Even if he wasn't his son, he taught this young man the art of piracy. This man's name was Diego the Mulatto, but when Jacob Zoon died, he took on that title, Diego Lucifer. Now, as with most of our pirates, Diego's early life is pretty unclear. He's frequently associated with other men, and his origins are cloudy, there's a lot of confusion over exactly which Diego did this and that. There are several Diego the Mulatto's, but this man, Diego Lucifer, becomes much clearer as time moves on. The first records that can be undeniably attributed to him show him living on the Spanish Main on the Yucatan Peninsula at the town of Campeche with his godfather. Now, he received an education and reportedly spoke several languages. We know Spanish and Dutch, perhaps even others. But his education may not have been all that thorough. After all, Diego the Mulatto was a lower-class citizen. Anybody who had mixed racial blood was seen as secondary in the rigid social stratification of the Spanish system. So Diego's best opportunities were to become an officer either in the army or on a ship, but even his rank on a ship or in the army was limited. This was something that got under Diego's skin. He railed against it and was known to carry a sword with him everywhere. He was hot-tempered and freely answered any insults that he received with steel. Later in life, he spoke of one such insult, Now, we don't exactly know all the details, but it appears that it was an insult that he couldn't give answer to. You see, it was a white man of high standing that gave it to him, an officer that he could not retaliate against. So, Diego left town, and he set out to sea. His first ship was probably a tiny vessel, maybe even just an open rowboat with a couple of casks of rum and water. He took ships and upgraded his vessel until eventually he was raiding all along the coast of the Spanish Main. And then the records state that he joined the crew of Jacob Zun, who may have been his father. Now, his education in the Spanish Navy really proved useful on a pirate vessel. He knew the use of arms, and he knew sailing, and he knew tactics. Now, if Jacob Zoon was his father, it may have helped, but he quickly rose through the ranks on his vessel, and most of the men looked to Diego for commands. But when Jacob Zoon Lucifer died, Diego took command of his ship, and he sailed to Providence, and then to the island of Tortuga. It was there that he took on a crew of some of the most fearsome and famous buccaneers on Tortuga. They were mostly Dutch, but French, English, and African. They allied with other captains as well, including one of the most renowned buccaneers in the Caribbean, a man named Cornelius Zoon Joel, who had the nickname Wooden Leg. I'll let you guess why. Joel was, at the time, a more feared and a more famous pirate than Diego, but he decided to ally himself with a young man, the son of Jacob Zoon, that greatest shark in the sea. Now, what Diego was after was simple. There was plunder, of course, he was a pirate. There was fame, as many of these buccaneers craved, but then there was vengeance. Vengeance for that slight years ago against him, whatever it happened to be, and the whole of the Spanish system that had held him back as a child. Diego had a well-trained military mind and an eye for opportunity, but he knew something that all of the great pirate lords shared. While fear is a great weapon, mercy is even more powerful. We're shown this when Diego took a ship that was carrying the widow of a lord and the governor of Mexico City. When this widow was brought before Diego, he ordered all of her goods returned to her ship, and his fleet was going to accompany hers to Mexico to ensure that no other pirates assaulted them. And then he gave this woman his own cabin, with a lock on it and a guard to assure that she would not be harassed by any of the men on board. When this woman returned to the mainland, she spread around word of his gentlemanly conduct." This most feared pirate in the Caribbean found that captains who were assured of safe conduct were willing to surrender much more freely if it would save their lives and their ships. Sir Francis Drake knew this, and so would men like Henry Avery, Benjamin Hornigold, and Blackbeard. But one city in the entirety of the New World would receive no mercy from Diego. It was on the coast of the Yucatan, where he had been raised, Campache. It was on the evening of August 10th that the people of San Francisco de Campache came to the docks to watch the trade winds carrying 13 vessels. Former U.S. Navy SEAL Benerson Little wrote a book describing pirates' military tactics, and he described Diego's raid dramatically. It reads, quote, some of the observers noted the quiet beauty of the vessels in the offing The early sun shining on sails and timbers, several local merchant vessels, Fregadas del Puerto, were expected, and such arrivals were always a time for celebration, for with them came goods, money, and news. But not all on shore assured that their glad tidings were in order. Instead, they scanned the cut of the sails in view, and then the hulls of the vessels themselves, when they finally rose above the horizon it was soon apparent that only one of the vessels appeared to be spanish built the rest appeared to be dutch and the dutch were pirates End quote. on shore the alarm was raised and the church bell rang and the call for the militia was sent out the militia gathered on the docks or they ran to erect barricades they were armed with muskets and bows they were armed with pikes and swords They placed powder and shot strategically around the town, and they gave orders to locals and their native allies and the slaves. The women and children were told to run for shelter, and all of the men prepared to be attacked. But the thirteen ships laid at anchor and waited. There were no boats lowered from the side and no cannon fire. These thirteen ships sat in the harbor, eerily silent. The militia of Campeche was tense. They were on edge. The pirates might attack at any moment. As the sun creeped towards the horizon, they feared the worst. On board, though, the pirates rested. Let these soldiers wait. Let them fret for hours and grow heavy-lidded. The sky grew dark and the full moon rose, but still hours passed and the ships sat quiet. Midnight came and went. It was now the day of the feast of Santa Clara de Assisi. The buccaneers of Tortuga called their advance guard the Forlorn Hope, or, more shortly, the Forlorn. The Forlorn of these thirteen ships quietly lowered their boats and rowed toward shore. The soldiers were fighting sleep and dread, but they had their matches lit throughout the night. The Forlorn made landfall near town, led by Diego the Mulatto, and they marched toward campache wooden leg joel and the 500 men of the main force lowered their own boats and made for shore the forlorn passed the cemetery then the church on the southern outskirts of town there was a trench dug here but no men to defend it behind them wooden leg and his men marched forward diego and his company moved into town the homes were quiet and dark and still all around them Then, suddenly, the night was filled with fire, smoke, and the roar of fifty muskets, and iron and lead filled the air. Pirates fell and screamed, and Woodenleg Joel ordered a retreat. Diego raged and argued, but Woodenleg Joel had the command. As the pirates fled, the fifty Spaniards reloaded and ran to give chase to the invaders. But, five hundred pirates turned around and waited, muzzles trained on the road. As the Spanish came into view, the pirates fired. This left their commander and half of his force dying on the ground. As Diego led the force back toward Campache, he saw the commander dead on the ground. He stopped and said a small prayer. It was Captain Domingo Rivan Romero, his one-time mentor and his godfather. The force of pirates moved back into town slowly, wary of another ambush, but Diego knew his destination. At the center of town, as in all Spanish settlements, lay the main church, the town hall, and the storehouse. As the sun broke the horizon behind them, they saw a third trench, complete with a wooden barricade and 300 men guarding it. Domingo assessed the situation and gave the order to attack. The morning was filled with volley after volley of shots. It followed a pattern, fire, take cover, reload. Fire, take cover, reload. The men who had fire pots and grenades waited for an opening, but the Spanish were too well organized and they couldn't be approached in their trench, so Diego pulled back and devised a plan. He and 50 of his men left the firefight, while the remaining pirates increased their rate of fire. It covered Diego's group while they rounded a block of houses, snuck in, and attacked the Spanish flank. It was close and dirty combat. The pirates fired their muskets as they were approaching, then they dropped them and they pulled their pistols. As they ran into the mass of Spanish soldiers, they fired one pistol, then another, then they drew their cutlass or their axe and they lay about them at any Spaniard standing. This gave the remaining body of the pirates that were firing a chance to charge forward and fire or fling their grenades and shoot their bows. The mayor of the town and 37 men were dead within minutes. The pirates released a final volley of musket fire, and the rest of the Spaniards turned and ran. Diego, searching for his vengeance, told Joel that now was the right time to press the attack and finish all of the town's defenses. But Wooden Leg didn't exactly agree. He wasn't here for vengeance as Diego was. He was here just for plunder. For two days the pirates drank town dry, ransacked homes at will, murdered anyone they pleased, and took any woman they found. This was not the orderly raids of Drake's day, done in service to God and Queen and Country. These men had no country. They were filled with lust and rage. Most of the buccaneers had been taken from their homes either from European streets where they were pressed into service, or from the coast of Africa where they had been forced into servitude. All had lived hard lives, and each man here had been mistreated by the Spanish in one way or another. This attack was an orgy of violence, wine, and death, as they filled their pockets with any trinket that caught their eye. Diego and Woodenleg Joel would go on, though, to write to the highest officer left in town. He was holed up in a very well-defended church with every gun, soldier, and woman or child left in town. They demanded 40,000 pieces of eight. Campache had absolutely no hope of paying 40,000 pieces of eight, and Diego Lucifer knew it. He didn't expect the town leaders to pay up. He expected the commander of town to come and meet with him. With his godfather and the mayor both dead, the only authority left in town was Captain Domingo Rodriguez Calvo, who was the very man who, as a boy, had so insulted Diego. Diego boasted that he planned to cut off his ears and slice his nose, but not to kill him. He wanted Calvo to know who was the better man and to live with that knowledge. But Calvo would not give Diego the pleasure. He wrote the pirates a very simple message. It read, quote, "Do whatever you wish with Campeche." So this force of five hundred pirates concluded their plunder, richer but not quite by forty thousand pieces of eight, and they left Campeche behind them, in flames. Now this was the first and perhaps the most famous of Diego's raids, but his story is far from over. He's going to continue raiding for years and become the most famous pirate of his generation, and over and over again he's going to show up in our story. He's going to guide the English in their raid on Spanish Town. He will take captive a young and important priest named Thomas Gage, and he will sail with his successor, a then-unknown young man who will become the most famous buccaneer of the century. Next week we'll look at this story through the lens of three books that shape and that record the world around them. The first book is the English Book of Common Prayer. The second is the English American by Thomas Gage. And the third book we're going to look at is the Buccaneers of America by Alexander Exquimelin. I'd like to thank everybody who has shared the podcast. Either telling your friends about it, or leaving a review, or talking about it on Twitter. All of that stuff is really great, and I really appreciate all of that. I'd also like to thank all of our patrons on Patreon, and all of the people who have donated through PayPal, through the website. You guys really help keep the podcast afloat. I'd like you all to know that we've got some pretty tangible rewards coming in the near future. We've got some pretty amazing Pirate History Podcast merchandise coming. That treasure map style map of the Caribbean that's getting worked on is really amazing. The artist has told me I'm not allowed to post any pictures of it while it's still in progress, but that's too bad because it looks really cool right now, and I think everybody's really going to want one of these. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you're enjoying that music, you can go check them out at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not go on over to our website, piratehistorypodcast.com, where we've got... All sorts of supplemental information, pictures, maps, and a little synopsis of the episode. We've also got a list of all of the sources used in today's episode. Next to all of the sources is a link that goes to the AbeBooks.com listing on that book. So if you'd like to learn more about anything we talked about this week, you can use that link to go to AbeBooks and buy the book, and ABOoks is kind enough to throw me a couple of bucks. We've also enabled comments on the website, so if anybody has any questions or would like to make any comments, I really love reading and responding to them. Once again, and most importantly, everybody, thank you for listening. let him live on in legend tonight